This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Once a new technology gathers momentum, if you're not part of the steamroller, you're part of the road, so quipped Stuart Brand once. As the years advance, it's not easy, but I have developed strategies for not becoming part of the road. One of them is talking to people much cleverer than me, and boy, have I got someone clever for you today. To describe my guest as a King's College professor in wireless communications is to seriously undersell him. He is a polymath, a polyglot, a polysmarty pants, really, as happy giving piano recitals of his own compositions as he is giving lectures in English, German, or Catalan. Author of five books and hundreds of keynotes with several commercial patents to his name, welcome Misha Dola. Well, Alex, that's very kind. The most beautiful introduction I've ever had in my life. Thank you. Well, you know, unlike Michael Gove, we can never have enough of experts on this podcast. We love them. (laughs) (laughs) Misha, we recently had you on the weekly panel, uh, Bunker Podcast, explaining all about 6G. And I was struck by two things you said. The first thing was that you see reducing the latency of response. So the delay in a link coming up when I click on it or seeing someone's reaction on Zoom, you see that as an equally important advance as increased data speed and capacity. Explain why. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. And that's really the revolution. We started with 5G and uh, hopefully going to perfect now with 6G. The reason is because that is actually wired into our millions of years evolution of the human being. It turns out that our brains react very differently when signals come in within a sh- much shorter latency. In fact, the threshold is around 10 milliseconds. So mm. when we talk on Zoom and Skype and Teams, uh, the latency is often 100 milliseconds. You know, consciously, we don't really see the difference. Subconsciously, our brain knows that the person isn't really with us. And when people aren't with us, when they aren't around, we don't build this emotion, which normally we get when we see people face to face. So getting this latency down to 10 milliseconds or below allows us to bring back these emotions as if we actually met in person. The second thing was that you predicted we will eventually get up to 9G but probably no more, because by that point, networks will be self-synthesizing, meaning they will keep redesigning themselves. So a process of continuous improvement by tweaking rather than big bang generation releases. Are there any limiting factors to our capacity to transmit data wirelessly? I don't know, bandwidth, crowding or satellite availability? And are any of them currently seen as unresolvable in the future? 
Well, I love you, Alex. You actually listened to what I said. That's great. That's exactly always it. <laughs> brilliant. Excellent. Yeah. So we, you know, I, I have this very particular view. It's a very personal view on how, you know, our telco generations evolve. I call these uh, the odd generations. So 1G, 3G, 5G, and 7G in the future. A little bit like these generations where we introduce new concepts, you know, yeah. so always mm. somebody has a great idea. We introduce this with the odd generation and the even generations, so 2G, 4G, 6G, and 8G in the future. Future, we will need it really to consolidate that. And one of these, um, you know, novel features, which I will, I think, will appear really in, in, in 7G, is the ability for networks essentially to create themselves. Artificial intelligence, I think, has advanced sufficiently to do that. Technology has. Therefore, we will probably need until 8G for this to mature. And then hopefully we will not have a 9G in the future. We'll see how this plays out. But in terms mm. of fundamental limits, you know, the only thing we really have are these equations, which Maxwell found, you know, uh, hundreds of years back. In fact, when he worked partially at King's College in London. So we do have limits which relate to speed of light, bandwidth availability. Uh, that's the physical part. And then yeah. we do have all the political and spectrum part, which is a another story altogether are we anywhere near those limits at the moment or is there still loads of room to go i think there's a lot of room i think the the, the big question is you know at some point you start scribbling down the density of data which uh, you know a technology can produce or absorb with 6g if things go as planned this will be petabytes per second per square kilometer. I mean, I cannot imagine <laughs> so many people being in one place watching whatever you need to watch to get this data rate. So at some point, we just will hit a limit of why do we need to generate all this bandwidth, this capability? So mm. I think that might be a more of a social limit we will create in the future. So I'm just going to comment in passing that that means G numbers work the opposite way to Star Trek movie numbers, where <laughs> it is the even ones always that advance the action. I'll just throw that out there. So <laughs> tell me, will wireless data eventually make obsolete the need for physical infrastructure? Or will there always be a need for digging up roads? Because that tech is also advancing and getting faster. Yeah, yeah, actually, actually, quite, quite the opposite. The more wireless we have, the more infrastructure we need actually to support it, you know, because these waves which uh, are being emitted or received by your mobile phone, you know, they need to connect to something and that something is somewhere on the roof or, you know, on a lamppost. And uh, mm. uh, from there, it's actually not wireless anymore. We would use fiber. So the fiber community has also evolved. And, uh, you know, one thing we really need to get right as a community is that when we, we develop fiber, let's say we multiply fiber capacity by a factor of 10, then wireless should do the same because often you find that wireless now is able to pump, you know, 10 gigabits per second and then optical, uh, you know, fiber fiber technology is maybe not that advanced. So mm. synchronizing both is actually a really interesting challenge we, we face as a community. Yeah, and I was reading a fascinating article saying that this may even affect architecture of future homes because apparently some bandwidths are better at penetrating solids than others. So in the future, we might want to sort of have a glass frontage um, that faces the wireless mast or something like that. Do you remember Labour promising free broadband by 2030 mm -hmm. in the last election? So is that entirely redundant? Is Is the thing to do to promise free wireless data, essentially? Will that be a more 
equal way of distributing information capacity. Yeah, I mean, the concerning digital divide, probably, you know, helping in areas where we really struggle with the commercial model, be specifically speaking about, you know, rural areas, uh, you know, very far away areas. Government intervention, I think, is not really a bad thing, to be honest, because mm. that would really help there. Could we do that? Yeah, I think we could. You know, if you think about it, Alex, you know, building one meter of road costs you something i'm making up these numbers but it's in the order of let's say a hundred thousand pounds right mm. so and 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 just you know in, in embedding there one meter of dark fiber or even 10 strains will cost you pennies right so therefore every large infrastructure project in my opinion should have attached a digital agenda so we can maximize essentially that rollout of fiber, which is actually quite expensive. You, you know, you don't mm. want to dig up the entire country to to connect it. So if you can do it of large infrastructure rollouts, I think that's the right way to go. Yeah, although digging up is uh, jobs. There's a very old Greek joke about someone observing from the window a man digging a hole and then another man covering it. And and they go out to them and ask, why are you doing this? And and they say, it's not, it's not our fault that tree planting guy has a day off um <laughs> brilliant is, is there a sense in which we should be talking of these technology technological advances as public goods wouldn't the uk take a huge leap forward by saying for instance here is 6g and it's free to everyone i mean it would come at the cost of of the telecom sector but wouldn't the potential it unlocked in every other economic activity just dwarf that it's probably an argument, Alex. And in fact, you know, the United Nations has uh, uh, you know, published some really interesting reports about how connectivity relates to GDP or even relates to happiness. Very strong correlation between, you know, the degree of connectivity and GDP and happiness. So there's an argument to be made here. The commercial models turn out to be a little bit more uh, you know, stable in terms of longevity. So mm. one thing is that a government, a let's let's assume like say a labor government says, you know, we're gonna now do that infrastructure for free. And then another government comes along and says, look, we don't want to pay the maintenance uh, contracts anymore. Yeah. And then everything falls apart, right? So if we can find a model which kind of works with uh, with that discontinuity, so we decouple essentially these services from the political cycles you know, then we are on a winning streak because indeed mm. that would be a huge asset to, 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 to society. Yeah, long-term political goals, that'll be the day. You mentioned the UN. So how about notions of global fairness? We have seen a big demand for the democratization of vaccines, for instance, you know, for mm. saying before we give everyone in the UK a booster, let's prioritize every Brazilian person getting their first jab. Could there be similar arguments for this kind of data? So could Western governments say, before we auction off 6G license, we want to see you achieve targets for ensuring developing countries have 4G coverage? Could that approach be taken? The availability of information is, after all, a sort of immunization. From a social point of view, I, I think that would be the, the right thing to do. But every country looks for their own kind of well-being, as we know, and politicians, you know, try to score points with their, you know, with their electorate, in a sense. The Brazilian argument in, in the context of COVID 
it has actually a very strong scientific base because what you don't want is to roll out a very expensive vaccination program, let's say in the UK, and then find out that in other parts of the world, a new variant has emerged, which, mm. uh, you know, the current vaccine isn't uh, really Im- immune against. So th- this is like a, you really require global thinking here, whereas with the connectivity question is, and, you know, it's a true question. I don't know the answer to that. You know, what does the electorate in uh, UK gain by having, you know, Brazil fully connected? And th- there might be an argument that we, we, you know, the internet has democratized a lot of things, information, knowledge, uh, you know, experience. And uh, maybe there's a child somewhere in the rainforest in, in Brazil, which comes up with the next, uh, you know, cancer vaccine in a sense. Mm. So from this, from the global you know, global knowledge and inspiration point of view, I think really that makes sense. And maybe part of the digital dividends of uh, every country, maybe 1% or 2%, uh, maybe what Ofcom or the FCC gains from the spectrum auctions should be used for this uh, global good. I think that would be a great idea, but I'm not an economist. I I wouldn't be able to tell you whether from an economical point of view that makes sense. I am not going to ask you about 5G causing COVID or Bill Gates <laughs> stealing my brainwaves. <laughs> because you. to even discuss this, yeah. I think, is to give it a level of credence. I might as well ask you whether my cafetiere is plotting against me. <laughs> However, I recently interviewed Michael Wooldridge, you know, the um, AI guy from Oxford. Mm-hmm. And he said to me that part of his frustration with the prevailing doomsday scenario in his specialism, which is the singularity, is that it sucks oxygen out of debates we should be having about stuff that should worry us. You know, developing ethics alongside technology, the future of employment, ensuring innovation reduces rather than amplifies inequality. What is the stuff in your field that we should be talking about and aren't enough. Absolutely right. So I, I think we need to have exactly the same conversations, interestingly, and we're using quite a lot of artificial intelligence, in fact, in the you know emerging uh, uh, 6G systems. So all these discussions around the singularity moment you know, are pertinent to us as well. We really need to understand what's the future of work really within our sector, right? Or how does telecoms influence that future work? And I maintain that really we should use technology to automate jobs, but but humanize work. Okay, so literally take a burden off the very boring and mundane things I do every day and spend more time with you. Right, uh, have really interesting debates. I can use my creativity, maybe compose something, do music, do social good, help other people. So therefore, I think telecoms networks play a very central role here. And I think we haven't yet understood to which degree, really, the networks can help social good, advanced societies, which is maybe why we don't have these discussions around how much the government should actually be supporting these infrastructure, coming back to the question you had asked initially. I'm going to throw you a curveball. What about Brexit? I mean, I have to ask you, it's the law. My sister works in the area of research grants, and her impression is that it has created a slight bias against British institutions, not because of prejudice, but because research is almost always multinational. And Brexit makes that practically trickier. 
What's your sense from your sector? It's a disaster, really. I mean, Brexit, don't get me going. You know, me being a true... No, no, please, I'd like to get you going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Alex, I have, a, I have several companies and one of them really struggles currently with the cross-border trade. We can talk about this as well. From a research point of view, I think it is a disaster, really. And uh, the amount of you know, research grants have, has really diminished. And we had a vacuum of about four years because nobody knew what to do. The European partners wanted to involve us, mm. but weren't sure about the legislation. So nobody did. And sometimes we were involved. And then, you know, it felt a little bit, what you said is we were jeopardizing our friends' chances of getting the grants through. So in the end, a lot of us just said, you know, let's sit back. Let's go back to the European, uh, to the UK research councils. And, uh, and they're totally overrun now. You know, the acceptance rates are very low. Everybody's really frustrated. We are currently in a post-vacuum area. I think things are stabilizing now. But you will know that a lot of the running research grants uh, have been diminished or terminated because they were related to, you know, some external activities in the world. You know, I'm not really familiar with that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really bad, I think. You know, we're not. And I don't think Research Council has gotten all the money to recompensate for the loss of the European funding. And that's only the funding side. And then there's the social side, the collaborative side, you know, and I always saw the European Union less of a commercial entity, more of a, a peace building project. And uh, equally the uh, research grants, which the European Union gave were, you know, maybe not so much to advance really uh, significantly, let's say science and, and technology. It was really building communities, getting people together, building friendships across, you know, cultures and work across countries. And all that is lost to us now, uh, sadly, uh, to an argument which I still, you know, struggle to understand. One of your most interesting specialisms, I think, is the Internet of Skills. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? Internet of Skills is the ability to use your physical skills through the Internet in the near future, hopefully. So currently, you know, you can watch a video, you can uh, send an email through the internet, but you can't touch, you know, you can't move objects. And uh, in the future, I think we have now the technology to bring, you know, 5G and 6G connected to robotic equipment, a bit of artificial intelligence we need there. And you will have an internet in maybe five to 10 years time where we can imagine, you know, Vauxhall engineers repairing cars remotely and, uh, mm. you know, the plumbers not coming into your home, but actually doing that remotely. Or, you know, I could teach somebody how to play the piano. Somebody teaches me how to paint. So the ability to transmit this haptic signal, touch and muscle movement through the internet, this will be democratized with the internet of skills. So this sounds brilliant. I am thinking of a physiotherapist sort of giving someone the flexing movement that they need on a regular basis without having to be physically present at every patient's home. But I can't help but feel that at some point I'm going to tick some box. That means the companies that control the exchange of data will not just be transmitting my skill, but harvesting my skill. Is that a crazy notion? It's a crazy notion, but it's a notion which may indeed become a reality, seeing how things have evolved with our current internet. So I'm completely with you there, Alison. And in fact, you know, this is one of the the issues which really keeps us up at night. And, um, you know, I maintain that that whole, you know, ecosystem around 
privacy has not really been solved. So we haven't solved the problem, really. We, you know, people talk about uh, privacy by design. And what it really means is we are sitting around the table with companies like Facebook or Google, and uh, we're we are kind of trying to make them understand what we think privacy is. And they say, all right, we're going to put it somewhere on the T's and C's, the terms and conditions. When you want to use their services, you anyway, you tick it off, right? So what I maintain, in fact, I've been working on this interesting for a while, is that notion of privacy by engineering design. So currently, for instance, when a signal is being established, it's just, you know, that conversation we have is being transmitted by what we call IP packets, and they're encrypted. And when a switch or router off, let's say on the way BT or, you know, Virgin, uh, when they pick up this packet and it is not encrypted, they would drop it, right? They would say, this is not secure. I'm not doing this. But we don't have that for privacy. So what we need to build really is maybe to embed these privacy vetting mechanisms into the infrastructure. It is, it's a hard research problem, but I think once we solve that, then the, you know, the harnessing of data against our will will not be possible anymore. When people envision all this stuff coming together, you know, gadgets, robotics, AI, machine learning, big data, wireless communications, they come together and they think, oh, a, a sort of robot field medic, for instance. But geeks like me, we think superheroes. <laughs> we think Iron Man, for instance, or Batman. They derive their superpower in large part from technology. Mm. How close are we to our first superhero, do you think? <laughs> That's brilliant. I am also ticking in, you know, in, in superheroes. So yeah, Iron Man is a great example. You know, like, interestingly, I, I work with my students, I work a lot on innovation entrepreneurship, where do you get ideas from? And at some point it struck me that actually a lot of the tech and science innovation was always taken from science fiction. You know, so things which uh, science fiction movies we have seen 20 years, 10 years uh, back, etc. You know, a part of that technology is there today. So the question is not when will we arrive? I think it's always a, it is a kind of a fluid engagement, right? So people come up with ideas and then we will, in fact, implement them as engineers. We get inspired, we sleep over that. And I maintain as long as you pose a problem to a human engineer, eventually they will come up with a solution. So, and we do have now, you know, these flying suits. Now. Yeah, they're looking at the Iron Man uh, yeah. suit, the Ministry of Defense. Yeah, yeah. You were on the cusp of becoming a professional musician. You were on your way to the conservatoire to study the piano when you chickened out, those are your words, Yes. <laughs> and went into engineering. That yeah. says to me, you think performance takes a different sort of courage. And the fact that you have recently returned to performing says to me that you have found that courage somewhere. What was it that made you return to performing music or had you never left it really? I never left it really in spirit, but you know, I had my scar when I was a child and I had to perform in front of the whole school. I screwed up very badly and uh, I just came home. I remember I was 14 and came home and I was really depressed. And I said, look, I'm not never, ever going to play stuff by other composers ever again. And, you know, <laughs> just with insight, thinking about it, it really makes little sense. You know, there's a composer called Beethoven coming home, had a bad day, you know, played something, composed something. And then for the next 200 <laughs> years, we're trying to kind of, you know, everybody reproducing it. You make one mistake, everybody knows. And I thought, you know, if I do my own compositions, I can make as many mistakes as I want. And nobody will realize. And uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and I started composing then, but I never really, you know, had the courage to go on stage. And then, and then actually something really big happened. I had this, uh, you know, with my label when we launched my fifth album, Stories from Another World, there was an opportunity to do that in Los Angeles in front of 4,000 people. And I thought, you know what, now or never, you know, mm-hmm. I will not do 20, I'll not do 100, let's do 4,000. I was so nervous. You know, my wife was saying, you're unbearable. Two weeks before the event, I just, and then I flew to Los Angeles and uh, I gave that concert and it was just phenomenal and I really loved it. And ever since I'm on stage, I have no problem. But uh, it was an important moment. I thought all or nothing. I had more courage probably over the years, but I wanted to do it. I heard one profoundly moving piece i think from that album that was dedicated to your brother who passed Uh away Uh art is unique in helping us to process emotion how important is your artistic side to your roundness as a scientist mm-hmm. it's really central actually and i i couldn't do it without it and i love london for this i love london for this because it is the place where i can combine my engineering and scientific side with my arts you know ambitions my arts uh, feelings and uh, you know it's really where a lot of people speak the very same language and where really that cross-disciplinarity that co-creational part is really valued so it mm. is it is really central to my career. Why then do you think governments always play off STEM subjects as in competition with softer creative mm. subjects when it is crystal clear to me that mm. true excellence <laughs> demands both? Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's a disaster. It's really a disaster. The way, you know, the, the arts world has been wound, wound down in schools and uh, it's it's we're not going the right way and i hope you know at some point the government will wake up and say you know we really want this uh rounded people you know and maybe we are as a society too much competition driven too much you know money driven in a sense and what we really need is emotions what we need is um you know uh, people to have empathy and that's something we we're kind of starting to lose and i wish we, we would have more of that and i think arts gives us that element of empathy finally misha Do you ever question the wisdom of your entire discipline of wireless information accessibility? We did, after all, think that the internet was going to be this brilliant thing that made everyone wiser Mm -hmm. by making knowledge available. But it turns out it also makes it easier to Google your pet conspiracy and find blogs that legitimize it or makes it easier for racists to find other racists and pricks to find other pricks. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that having to work to get published was a useful filtering tool, that having to work to access specialist knowledge is part of a process that means by the time you get there, you have the skill to assess it critically, is more, faster, easier, always good. Uh, always good, I don't know. Uh, we do have, of course, we do question it, you know, and Alex, and that's why I'm also part of, uh, you know, a lot of policy initiatives, because I think these very overarching questions can only be solved at policy level because technology now and the commercial aspects are, are too entrenched. So, in, in you know, at Ofcom, I'm on the board of uh, the Spectrum board of Ofcom. You know, we, we do ask these difficult questions, right? We talk a lot about conspiracy theories, as an example. Uh, how do we handle that? You know, how to reach out to society. And, um, you know, sadly, everything we do always will have the two sides, right? So there is no one upside. And therefore, technology will come along, will democratize something, will give somebody who's been underprivileged the ability to do something uh, he or she couldn't do before. 
but at the same time, it will empower somebody else to do something uh, dark. And I think this this is something we we can solve at policy level, and we're working on this. So I'm you know I'm assuring you, I'm assuring the audience, we are working on this, and it's hugely important. We need more policy. We need more understanding about you know I call it giving technology a soul. So you know we need more of that, and maybe that cross disciplinarity, the arts, policy, and all that is the right way of moving. Misha, truly, it has been such a pleasure spending time poking your giant brain. Thank you on behalf of our listeners for your time. Thank you, Alex. It's it's great to be with you. I'm a huge fan of you. And yeah, <laughs> thank you. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. People are on the cusp of being able to communicate with each other directly as an entire species, something that hasn't been possible since we were one tribe on the Makadigadi salt flats 200,000 years ago. For heaven's sake, let us start thinking of kind things to say to each other. After all, we are family. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>